bow your heads with me, will you please? We'll speak to the Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you for these moments as if you would sit with each one of us and speak directly to us as if we, one by one, were just the only person listening to you, to whom you address and give your attention. Take my lips, Lord, and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, we're in this series, What on Earth Am I Here For? I don't know, do you ever get to a place where you, uh, I'm looking around the audience here, where you go to, like, go upstairs, go to a room, and then you stand there and think, what am I doing here? Does that ever, ever happen to you? Happens to me a lot. Suddenly I'm thinking, and then I have to go back down and then retrace my steps and hope that I realize why I was there, because I was definitely on a mission. I leave my keys in my car. It's a dangerous thing to say here, because my car could disappear as a prank. But I leave my keys in my car at home, in the parking lot. I sometimes take them with me if I'm, say, at Sam's or some other place. And Kathy, my wife, says, John, one of these days, your car is going to be stolen. It's an invitation. You're leaving your keys in the car. It's ridiculous. So I step out of the church a little while ago, and my car is gone. And I think, oh my goodness me. So I call up the cops and give them my registration number, say somebody's stolen my car. I didn't tell them that I'd left the keys in the car. <laughs> then I call Kathy and say, you're right, sweetheart, somebody stole my car. It's not in the lot. She said, John, I drove you to church this morning. <laughs> I said, well, you better come and get me. She said, I will as soon as I can convince the cops that I haven't stolen your car. <laughs> Same problem. What on earth am I doing here? Well, we're in the third week, really the fourth week, but the third of the great reasons for God having created you and me. First is to worship him, to give him pleasure. To give him pleasure, to please him. Our expression of that is to be worshiping him. That's not just church. That's in everything we do. How we drive how we play our sports, how we do our job. We do it for him, all of it. Not for ourselves, not just to earn a buck, but he becomes our boss and we work as to please him, says the Bible. That's number one. Number two, 
We are really formed to be a family, to belong. All of us want to belong, whether it's clubs or gangs or families or schools or a city with a winning baseball team, not last night, but uh, whatever. We want to belong. God has made us to belong. He's made us to worship in the first place. If we won't worship him, we'll find someone or something else to worship. We will worship, whether it's pleasure, beauty, whatever. Similarly, we will belong. Back when I was hanging out in the scene that Brad's in now, there was a couple of guys singing, very, very famous, by the name of Simon and Garfunkel. With a name like that, you'd have to be famous, Garfunkel. And they sang a song, I am a rock, I am an island. I have no need of friendship, friendship causes pain. I have my books and my poetry to console me. That's a lie. You can understand them not wanting to get too close. You get hurt. Friends hurt you. But nevertheless, we keep risking friendship. None of us can live by ourselves. We are not an island. We are not a rock. We are made for relationships and to belong. That was week two of the big missions that God has given us all the longings. This week, we are created to become like Christ. A longing for something better is in every human heart and mind. Whether you play golf, tennis, you're a mum or a dad or a student, whatever it is, there is the inbuilt knowledge that we can do better, that we can be more. There is that longing. That's an internal drive given by God which finds its fulfillment when we get into relationship with Christ and want to become more and more like him. And that's what we're speaking about this morning, becoming more like Jesus. There are three big words. Let me get theological on you just for a moment. There are three big words in Christian experience. The first is, I'll say them and then go back over them. The first is justification. The second is sanctification. And the third is glorification. Justification, when we set our faith in Christ, and we are born again spiritually, we become alive in Christ, and the word that's used in the Bible to describe that is to be justified. That is, just as if I'd never sinned. We are sinners. We come to Christ as sinners. We come to the cross as sinners. We ask him to forgive us, and when he comes into us, we are given a righteousness that's not our own, that we haven't developed. It's a gift from God. He makes us righteous with a righteousness that Christ has won for us in dying on the cross and walking from the grave alive. And that is called being justified. 
Let me read this scripture to you, make a note of it if you want to follow up on this. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. Listen to these words. Paul says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That's a gift to us. When that happens, the Bible says we are justified. Justified by faith. So while we still are sinners, God looks at us and sees us looking like Jesus. Because we are in Christ. Justified by him. That's the first big word. The second is sanctified. That means now in reality, day by day, to become more like Jesus. Now that's what we're speaking of here. To become more and more like Christ. The word is sanctified. To become day by day through our own decision making and commitments and lifestyle, more and more like Jesus in reality, that others may see Christ in us. You know the line, I'm not what I want to be. And I'm not what I'm going to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Not what I want to be. Not what I'm going to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. To be able to day by day look and see Christ at work in us, reflecting in us more and more of himself. That's sanctification. In that passage we have just had read for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory of the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. Transformed into his likeness. Being made more and more like him. Scripture says there's another place to be conformed to his image. To be like him. The third word is glorified. And that goes to the day when we step out of this life and into heaven. And the scripture says that we will see Christ and be like him. Put another way, this is what the epistle to the Philippians says, chapter 3 and verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The ultimate will be when we are in heaven and we will be perfectly like Christ. We may even have a body like his that can be here one moment visible and somewhere else later visible. It's all a mystery. 
But the Bible says that when we see Jesus, that's face to face, when we go home to heaven and see him, we will be made like him. That's glorified. Now, you'll notice in all three of those, Jesus is absolutely central. To be justified is to be in Christ and by faith receive a righteousness from him so that when the Father sees us, he sees us as in Christ looking like Jesus. Sanctification is our desire and participation with God and the Spirit of God working in us to become more like Jesus. And glorification, hallelujah, when that day comes, no more sin, no more death, no more tears, no more alienation, like Jesus' imperfection. That's where we're headed. So between getting justified and being glorified, we're on an ongoing journey of being sanctified, to be made like Jesus, transformed. Now, one of the devil's great tricks is to make righteousness and holiness look unattractive. Who wants to be called goody two-shoes? Who wants to be regarded as a Puritan? Taken good ideas and twisted them so that our human instincts, which are sinful, reject the idea of being goody two-shoes, of being righteous, of righteousness being made to look like ugliness. It's a deception. Let me tell you something. Sin is what screws everything up. And we are good at it. So nearly everything we touch, we screw up. If only we could see things from God's point of view. Look at the mess we've made of this world. Look at the mess we've made of our schools. I mean, I'm reading articles now printed in public media and hearing it, whether it's on television or radio, that it looks like the world is falling apart, like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. What's that all about? It's wickedness. Wickedness always kills, always destroys relationships, health, whatever, and ultimately eternal death in hell. Sin is a killer. Righteousness is amazingly wonderful and beautiful because it is like Jesus. Get this picture in your mind. Jesus is what holiness looks like in human form. He was absolutely perfect. And people were drawn to him. Actually, what was remarkable in his days, the self-righteous religious were not drawn to him, but the sinners and those who wanted something better were drawn to him. The condemnation that the religious self-righteous leveled at Jesus was he meets with sinners and they eat with him. When Jesus makes this comment, I speak these words to you, 
that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. There are two things that are being said there. Number one, he wants us to be a joy-filled people. But he says, as he goes on, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. The second thing he's really saying, actually says first, is I'm joy-filled. He was not a misery gut. He was a joyful person. That's why he was attractive. People were drawn to him. And he wants the joy that was his to be in us. Somebody has made the statement that God's great desire for us is not to make us happy, but make us holy. But I tell you this, when you are holy, you are happy. We were made to be like Jesus originally. We've screwed it all up with sin. And we've done a major, amazing, crummy, stinking, good job of it. So this, once we give our lives to Christ and God sees us as looking like Jesus, and then his spirit comes to indwell us and gives us the compulsion, the driving force from within to be like Jesus. Here's the first big deal, given that theological introduction. To become like Christ, it is not about imitation, imitating him, but inhabitation, his dwelling in us. How often have you made commitments not to do this, New Year's commitments, New Year's resolutions, all kinds of commitments? It's good to make those commitments, but the power to become Christ-like is not ours, humanly speaking, but Christ in us is the hope of glory. So Jesus speaks about our being engrafted into him, his life flowing in us, and our life producing fruit that is Christ-like, Jesus' fruit. He is the one who achieves it in us. We participate with him in that, but the power is not in us to get it done. It's Christ in us, at work in us, his spirit at work in us, so not by imitation, but his inhabitation, his dwelling in us. Secondly, by his word, to behold him. The word that we are looking at here, this amazing statement, go back to verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's right there in front of you in your service sheet. And we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed by his likeness, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How does that happen? Well, first of all, to have Christ in you. Secondly, to go to his word and look into his word and dwell upon his word, meditate on his word, that is the Bible, so that as you look into his word and dwell on his word, meditate on his word, the Spirit of Christ in you has a transforming influence because of God's word, a sanctifying influence. 
In John chapter 17 and verse 17, Jesus was praying. And this is what he said to the Father. Praying for us, as well as those immediate disciples, sanctify them by the truth. Sanctify them, that's that word. Make them more like me. Make them more like you. Make them more righteous. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. In another place, Jesus said, I have spoke, the words I have spoken to you have cleansed you, made you clean. The reason why we are pressing so continually for you to get into God's word, the reason why, whether it's Pastor Jamie, myself, Pastor Jared, or anybody who preaches here, Pastor Ed, we preach the word. Satan would have us preach little stories and little epithets, little, little moralisms. Scripture says, preach the word in season and out of season. When people like it, when they don't. When things are going well for you, when they're not. God's word is truth. We get sanctified by the truth, made clean by the truth. Not the lies of Satan, not the lies of this world, but God's truth. Scripture tells us not to be conformed to this world, world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. How does that go on? How does that work? God's Word. Get your heart, your mind into God's Word. That can't be emphasized enough. God's Word has a purifying influence as the Spirit of God goes to work taking his truth and making us see God from, excuse me, see things from God's point of view. It's recalibrating your thinking. It's reshaping your priorities. It's redirecting your ambitions. It's stirring new longings in you. You ignore God's word. You just go do your own thing along with the gang that you hang out with. Obviously, you are here to worship. And in being here, you're obviously demonstrating that you all want something more. But day in and day out, Take God's Word at its face value. Dwell on it. Memorize it. And let it direct your path. It's a lamp to your feet, a light to your path, a direction so that you can walk in the ways that God calls righteousness. The right path. He'll direct your paths. Thirdly, the need for one another. There are a lot more that could be said, a lot more things that could be said. But again, the scripture says this. This is Hebrews chapter 10, 25. We are to encourage one another and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need one another. We need to be together. And scripture makes it quite plain that where there were those who were starting to sort of hive off on their own. 
not be a part of the church family, not engage with real believers in genuine relationships, which we call fellowship, that they were being, being picked off. When you're out there on your own, it's so easy to go with the wrong crowd and get picked off. To have one another together, just in the worship experience, singing together, hearing the Word of God together, praying together, focusing on Him together, that's an encouragement. Well, we need each other. When I first became a believer, I heard that there was a midweek, that's what it was called, Bible study and prayer meeting at my church. Now, I was into athletics, I was into being a student, I was into girls, I was into dancing, I was into a whole lot of stuff. But when I found out about that midweek get-together, where there was some Bible teaching and prayer, for me that became an oasis in the middle of a week-long desert. Sunday was one oasis, Wednesday was another. Because I got together with other believers and heard some Christian teaching. And that was a whole new lifestyle. To go to church in the middle of the week? Well, we got one fantastic youth ministry here. Middle school, high school. I don't know whether you kids are turning up at it. But my encouragement to you is get there. You need to be there. They need you there. You need them. And it becomes a mutual encouragement. Have you ever been in an away game with the Steelers and there are thousands of screaming maniacs for the other team? And you're like there? Maybe you've got the guts to wear the black and gold. Maybe. My brother went, one of my brothers, I have a number of them, went down to South America for the World Cup to root for England. Well, the South Americans are insane. They put fences around the field itself so that they they can keep the crowd off the field and away from the players and away from the referees. They're nuts. And here is my brother down in South America in a sea of fanatical South Americans and he's got a Union Jack, that's the English flag, on a little stick on his pocket on the inside. And he said, I whip it out and go, yay England, and put it back again quick. Some of us make the same move for Jesus. Yay, Jesus! Whoops! But when we get together, when you're down at Heinz Field rooting for the Steelers, now that's another deal. When we're here together cheering one another on in Jesus, that's another deal. We've been encouraging you to get into fellowship groups. I got some statistics put in front of me this morning. We now have studying... What on earth am I here for? 46 small groups assembled in the church. Let me tell you how many people that is. 470 people are meeting weekly in small groups. 
And hey, kids, get enthusiastic. If you're going to do it, do it. But kids, there are 89 teens meeting in small groups. For you too. What's that about? Becomes an, another opportunity in the week in a smaller context where people know your name, just like Cheers, the pub in Boston, where everyone knows your name, knows who you are. To be in such a group, we need each other. Christ in you, his word before you, his people around you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of eternal life. Thank you for the gift of yourself. Thank you that all things are summed up in you. You are our everything. Grant to us, Lord, to dwell upon you and more and more genuinely reflect you and look like you. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.